Come to Lord's Day 2 in the Heidelberg Catechism. You want to follow along. It's in the back of your hymn book, page 872. And then we're going to open God's Word to Romans 7. Lord's Day 2 asks the question, how do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22, 37 to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No. I'm inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. I invite you to open your Bibles now to Romans 7. We're going to focus primarily on verses 7 through 12. Romans 7. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Verse 2, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, that I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, 
but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of of sin. So far the reading of God's Word and I encourage you to keep it open to verses 7 through 12. Every person who has ever lived or ever will live has some understanding of the fact that they are sinners. From the person in the jungles of Africa to the man on the concrete sidewalks of Toronto, every person has some awareness that he or she is a sinner. In Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul said, For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Even those who do not have the Bible have some awareness that they are sinners and some sense of right and wrong. They have a knowledge of God written on their hearts, a built-in sense of what God requires of them. They also possess consciences that tell them that they ought to obey this law and condemn them when they fail to obey. However, the tendency of the natural man is to ignore the voice of conscience. And the more a person ignores the voice of conscience, the quieter that voice becomes. The law of God written on the heart and the voice of conscience are not sufficient to awaken men and women to their danger. Therefore, what we need is the written law of God to convict us of our sin. Paul said in Romans 3.20, by the law is the knowledge of sin. This afternoon, in connection with Lord's Day 2, we want to focus our attention on Romans 7, verses 7 through 12. Consider with me the following. The revealing power of the law, the provoking power of the law, the deadly power of the law, and the conclusion with respect to the law. We begin with the revealing power, the revealing power. In the first six chapters of Romans, Paul says many things about the law that sound rather negative. The statements that he makes could conceivably cause someone to conclude that the law itself was evil, that something is wrong with the law. For example, if you look at verse 5 of this chapter, Paul declared that the law arouses sinful passions. It arouses sin and links up with sin to bring about death. 
Because of these rather negative sounding statements concerning the law, the apostle anticipated an objection. Look with me, please, to the beginning of our text, Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Are we to conclude that the law itself is a sinful thing? Was the law given by God through Moses actually evil? Is it responsible for our sinful behavior? Is the law bad? If the law cannot justify, if it cannot make us right with God, if it arouses sinful passions, then what is the value of the law? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Isn't the law of God sinful since it leads to evil? Notice how Paul answers this objection. Verse 7. Is the law sin? Certainly not. The authorized version says, God forbid. God forbid. Of course the law is not sinful. It is outrageous even to suggest such a thing. Then he goes on to explain to his readers the value of the law. It has great value for the Christian. What does the law do? Well, look again at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. What is the value of the law? It reveals sin. It reveals our warts and imperfections, our failure to meet God's standard. It is the written law of God, particularly the Ten Commandments, that we, that we come to understand our sin and misery in the sight of God. It is through the law. Sin, by definition, depends on some kind of standard by which performance and behavior is measured, right? The law clearly reveals what is right and wrong. And as we look into the mirror of the law, we come to see that we fail miserably in conforming to it. The congregation, that revelation of sin is so very necessary. We need to know our sin. It's extremely important. One theologian said this, listen. Oh, the perils of not knowing our sin. There is a great sadness that comes from not being saddened by knowing our sin. There is a great pain that comes to the soul and to the marriage and to the family and to the church and to the world from not tasting the pain of knowing our sin. There is a great self-destruction that comes from not experiencing the self-devastation of knowing our sin. There is an eternal loss that comes from not losing our pride in the knowledge of our sin. If there is any hope and any faith and any joy and peace and love, it will come from knowing our sin. So get to know your sin, end quote. Isn't that so true? Knowing your sin is vital. It's vital. And it's by the law, especially the Ten Commandments, that you arrive at that knowledge. In our fallen condition in Adam, we don't like to, to admit that we're sinners. We don't care to acknowledge that our thoughts, words, attitudes, and actions are evil. Our every inclination is to do evil. We don't like to admit that we, by nature, are an offense to God. 
But when we hear God's law, our heart is pierced. And we come to see that we are vile, filthy, dirty, and deplorable to God. The law calls us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But when we look at ourselves, we realize that our devotion is nil, our obedience is terribly lacking, and our life is not a demonstration of love for God. The law also calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves. But when we examine our life in light of God's requirements, we realize that we're much quicker to criticize our neighbor than to love him. We're more inclined to serve ourselves than to serve God and neighbor. And so the law points an accusing finger at us and says, you're a sinner. You're a great sinner, a transgressor before the Lord. Without the law, you would have no way of accurately assessing your condition. It is the law that reveals God's standard of righteousness, and it's the law that enables us to see how far short we have fallen and how helpless we are to meet its requirements by our own efforts. What is it, children? What is it that the law demands? The law demands perfection right? Perfection. Inward and outward, perfection. The law says you must be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Jesus affirmed this in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. God's law requires perfection and nothing less. When we examine ourselves in light of that divine standard of righteousness, then we can only say, I am a miserable, dismal failure. But congregation, that is not altogether negative or discouraging because in our pain we begin to see our need of what? The gospel. We will not embrace the gospel unless we understand our corruption and misery. Without knowledge of our sin, we will not seek the true and only Savior. In the second part of verse 7, the Apostle Paul illustrated the value of the law from his own experience. By means of his own personal testimony, he explained how the law reveals sin. Please go with me in your Bibles to verse 7b. Paul said, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Before his conversion, Paul considered himself to be a righteous man. In the third chapter of Philippians, he tells us that he was a very moral person. He considered himself to be zealous for God. A model of virtue. He was blameless. But then the Holy Spirit began to deal with him through the 10th commandment. And as the Lord impressed the 10th commandment upon his heart and mind, he came to understand that the demands of God's law were not only external, but also internal. The 10th commandment forced him to look not only on the outside, but also on the inside. Paul came to see that God requires not only external purity, but also internal purity. 
See, the 10th commandment exposed his inward desires and he came to see with the, that he was inwardly sinful. The 10th commandment qualifies all the other commandments, right? For example, the 8th commandment says you shall not steal what belongs to your neighbor. The 10th commandment says you should not even desire to do this. Or the 7th commandment tells us that we must not commit adultery with our neighbor's wife. The 10th commandment tells us that we are sinning if we even desire to do this. The 10th commandment convicts us that God's law requires more than outward conformity. It requires inward purity of heart, inward holiness. It was through the 10th commandment that Paul came to see that all his righteousness as a Pharisee was rubbish before God. The 10th commandment revealed his inward corruption so that he understood that he had broken all the commandments. Paul would never have rightly understood his condition were it not for the Holy Spirit convicting him through the law of God. He saw his evil heart and evil desires. Brothers and sisters, that is what the law does to you. That's what it does to me. We see our corruption and vileness so that we see our need of Christ. So that we see our need of Christ. So that's point number one. But then secondly, our text not only shows us the revealing power of the law, but also the provoking power of the law. The provoking power. Look with me please to verse eight. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Well, what's Paul saying here? He's saying that the law not only reveals sin, but it actually inflames sin. The law stimulates and arouses it. Paul already made mention of this in verse 5. He said, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members. The law, said Paul, was the means of arousing our sinful passions. Now, does that mean that the law itself is sinful? Well, not at all. God forbid, certainly not. It is sin in a person's heart that takes opportunity through the commandment to produce all manner of evil desire. The problem is not the law. The problem is sin. Let me try to illustrate what Paul's saying here. You kids can perhaps identify with this. The teacher told his grade seven, eight students that they were not allowed to climb the trees on the playground. They were concerned that someone was going to get hurt, so they decided you may not climb the trees. That was the rule. That was law. However, as soon as that law was made, what did some of the children do? At recess time, they waited till no one was looking and then climbed the tree. Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in them that evil desire. The law provoked them to sin. Their desire to climb the tree was awakened by the prohibition. Next to the school was the woods. If you walk through some of, uh, through some of the trees and down the hill, there was a small river. At the beginning of one school year, the teacher said, for everyone's safety, the woods are off limits. You must remain on the school property. So at noon hour, what did some of the students do? 
You guessed it, they spent their recess in the bush. The desire to play in the woods was awakened by the prohibition. When the teacher told them not to do something, it got their minds thinking about it, and because they were sinners, they soon found themselves wanting to do that very thing. Isn't that true in so many areas of life? Because our hearts are evil, we often want to do what is forbidden. The commands and prohibitions often provoke us to do the opposite. A sign says, keep off the grass. So what does the group of children do? They step on the grass. A sign says, no swimming in the river. So what do they do? The very thing the sign forbids. The desire to swim is awakened by the prohibition. I once read of some teenagers who climbed some hydro towers. The sign on the tower warned of the danger of high voltage wires. What did they do? They did the very thing the sign told them not to do. The desire to climb the tower was awakened by the prohibition. Nothing is so attractive as the forbidden. The law provoked them to disobey. A group of friends stood by a fence upon which were attached several signs, no trespassing. The signs were there because the farmer didn't want people stealing his apples. The friends knew what no trespassing meant. They also knew from their parents the commandment, you shall not steal. Well, what did they do? Well, when no one was looking, they jumped the fence, ran to a tree, picked a few juicy apples, and ran back to the other side. Seizing sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in them that evil desire. If they had gone to one of their homes and asked for an apple, they would have received one. But instead of doing that, and receiving one or or several in a lawful manner, they climbed the fence and took one in an unlawful manner. The prohibition incited them to sin. They wanted to possess what they were not permitted to possess. The desire to climb the fence and take the apples was awakened by the prohibition. So it is, congregation, when people are confronted by God's law. That which God forbids becomes all the more attractive. The prohibitions of God's law provoke us to do the opposite. Sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produces in us all manner of evil desire. The law incites wickedness. As the law incites wickedness, it teaches us how powerful sin is. It uses God's good law to awaken evil desires in our hearts. Paul says in verse 8b, have a look. Verse 8b, for apart from the law, sin was dead. That is to say, when there was no law forbidding the climbing of trees in the playground or forbidding entrance into the woods, their sinful nature was inactive, somewhat dormant. To say that apart from the law, sin was dead is to say that sin was inactive. But when the law is known, sin is aroused and the power of sin revealed. So first of all, the law reveals our sin. Second, the law provokes, incites, and flames our sin. And then third, we also see in our text the deadly power of the law. The deadly power 
of the law. Follow along with me, please, at verse 9. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, verse 10, and the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Verse 11, for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Now, let's try to take this apart beginning at verse 9. I was alive once without the law. When Paul says he was alive once, he meant that before he was convicted by the law, he felt rather good about himself. As a Pharisee, he considered himself to be blameless with respect to legalistic righteousness. He obeyed the letter and was convinced that his life was pleasing to God. He was in good standing with the Lord. But then, when the commandment came, When he was convicted by the law, sin revived, sin sprang to life, and I died. Through the law, he came to see himself as he really was, not blameless, not pleasing to God, not in good standing with the Lord. He saw that he was guilty, that his condition was hopeless, he was lost. He was once alive in the sense that he had no fear of punishment. No fear of God's judgment, no painful awareness of sin. He was a self-righteous Pharisee without any concern about judgment. He thought that he was morally and spiritually healthy. But when the commandment came and powerfully convicted him, he died. That is to say, he fell into a state of misery from a painful awareness of sin. All his false security disappeared. When he realized what the law really required, he understood that he was a great sinner. It was then that he died. His self-righteous, self-satisfied nature died. When the law convicted him, he realized that he was morally and spiritually vile. In verse 10, The apostle said, And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. The law which he had trusted in as the way to eternal life turned out to be the way to death. The Pharisees believed that their obedience to the law would earn them a place in the kingdom of heaven. In his years as a devout Pharisee, Paul was confident that through obedience to the law, he gained God's approval. After all, do we not read in Leviticus 18, verse 5, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall, what? Live by them. As a zealous Pharisee, Paul thought that God's law would bring life. But when the law convicted him, he realized that he could never fulfill its requirements, and therefore he stood under its sentence of death. Yes, the law, if it was perfectly kept, would bring life. If Paul had met all the requirements of the law flawlessly, he would indeed have gained everlasting life. Keep my statutes and my judgments and you shall live. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself and you shall live life everlasting. However, God revealed to him that he could not fulfill the law's demands. And therefore, the commandment which was to bring life, he found to bring death. 
He discovered that perfect obedience to the law was not possible for fallen, sinful people. Therefore, the law brings death instead of life. In verse 11, we read, have a look there. Verse 11, we read, For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, or seizing an opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Paul had been deceived, thinking that the law was the way to life. He discovered the very opposite. Sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived him and slew him. He expected life and found death. The law could not do what he expected it to do. The law only aggravated his guilt and misery. Congregation Paul came to understand how foolish it was to expect salvation from the law. It is impossible. It is impossible. If there's anyone here today who may be resting your hope in your own obedience, I must warn you that you are sadly deceived. If you think that you're acceptable to God because of your own righteousness, you are terribly misinformed. Self-righteousness is unrighteousness. If you're resting your hope in your own obedience, your church attendance, your doctrinal correctness, your generosity, kindness, honesty in business, your clean life, your commitment to Christian education, the many thousands you have contributed to missions. If you're resting your hope in all these wonderful things, all these things that you have done, sin has deceived you. And the law which you believe will bring life will actually bring death. Like the apostle, you need to recognize sin's deceit, your own spiritual helplessness, and the law's impossible demands. You must be smitten by the law so that you see your state of misery. You need to come to the awareness that in yourself you are morally and spiritually vile. You must die with respect to your self-assurance and self-righteousness. Die with regard to your self-satisfied nature. Brothers and sisters, think about this for a moment. What is the roadblock that stands between so many people and their salvation by our gracious and forgiving God? John Gerstner said, the roadblock is the sinner's good works. Not their sins, but their good works. Their delusion that they do not need Christ and that their own good works can satisfy God. Dear friends, if any of you here today have that attitude, you are still far from God and the kingdom of heaven. Your house of cards will be decimated. You need to be able to say with all sincerity, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So first of all, we see from our text the revealing power of the law. 
Second, the provoking power of the law. And third, the deadly power of the law. Now we want to consider Paul's conclusion regarding the law. Paul's conclusion regarding the law. Look please to verse 12. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. The law is very helpful and necessary. It smites our self-confidence and decimates our self-righteousness. It shows how hopeless we are in our sinful condition. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Congregation, the law does exactly what God meant for it to do. It cannot save us. That's not the purpose of the law. The law was not meant to save you. It was given so that we might know our sin and misery and so that we might see that apart from Christ, we are completely hopeless. The law drives us to him who alone kept the law. The Puritans used to say that it was the preacher's task to slay men by the law so that they might be raised up by the gospel to slay men by the law so that they might be raised up by the gospel. By the law, we become fully persuaded that we cannot be saved without Jesus. The law drives out and destroys all self-righteousness so that we embrace the one who alone is righteous, our Lord Jesus. And so the law is holy and just and good. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. The fact that the law convicts, provokes, incites, and condemns does not make the law evil, not at all. The law reflects the holiness and righteousness of God, the character of God. If we are to dwell with that holy God, we must be holy. And the only way that we can be holy is to despair of ourselves and receive by faith the imputed righteousness, the imputed, transferred righteousness of Jesus. Paul himself came to rejoice in that righteousness. You remember what he said to the Philippians? What things were gained to me these I have counted loss for Christ, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Hear this, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God by faith. Brothers and sisters, through the law, we see our need for that righteousness, the righteousness which is from God. So let me ask you this afternoon, has the law shown you the folly of self-righteousness? Has it slain you? Has it shown you your sinful nature to such a degree that you cried out as the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? 
Perhaps you have never knelt down before an idol of wood or stone. But have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Perhaps you never made a carved image, but is your worship pure, genuine, joyful, and in the beauty of holiness? Perhaps you've never taken God's name in vain, but have you always defended His name and delighted in it? Perhaps you've never brazenly violated the Sabbath, but have you always used His day to exalt Him, to praise and magnify your God? Perhaps you never murdered anyone, but have you always loved your neighbor as yourself? Perhaps you've never committed adultery, but have your thoughts always been pure and holy? Have you never had a lustful thought? You see, brothers and sisters, if we're honest with ourselves, then we must confess the law is holy, but I am unholy. The commandment is just, but I am unjust. The commandment is good, but I am evil. In every one of God's good commandments, I fall short and fail. I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. When I look in the mirror of God's law, I see dirt, grime, and filth, as we saw this morning, from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. But oh, what a blessing to understand how filthy I am. For the mirror of God's law drives me to the soap and water by which I am cleansed. That soap and water which removes the filth is the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sin, children? You know that song, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The Lord said to the prophet Isaiah, come now. And let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. David said in Psalm 51, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop was the brush that Israel used to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and on the lintel. When David said, purge me with hyssop, he was saying, cleanse me with the blood of the lamb. Cleanse me with the blood of the lamb. Brothers and sisters, that is where the law must bring us, to the blood of the lamb, the blood that has the power to strip away all the dirt, all the grime, all the filth, all the stench. As Charles Wesley said, his blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Yes, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Thank God for his holy law, and thank God that we may be holy through the Holy One, our Lord and Savior. William Cooper said, we sang it, I believe, last week. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. In Christ, the accusing voice of the law is silenced, for we are righteous through faith in Him. So in one of his hymns, John Newton said, we sang it, didn't we? 
Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. Congregation in Christ, the accusing voice of the law is silenced, for we are righteous through faith in him. I close then with this vital question. Is Christ your righteousness? Are you washed in his blood? Important questions. What is your answer? Let us pray. We thank you, Lord our God, that you have given us a Savior, and that through Christ, the law's loud thunder is silenced. We thank you for the Holy One, our Lord Jesus, through whom we are regarded as holy. Lord, we pray that you will do your mighty work in each and every one of us here. May the law smite us that we may flee for refuge to the gospel. Lord, if any of us here are simply cruising through life with little concern about our soul, our standing with you, and our destiny, we ask that you would come by your Holy Spirit through your law to break such a one, even as you did with the apostle. Bring such a one to their knees before you, that as they see their sin, they may find great hope in the one who was without sin, even Jesus. Receive our praises as we conclude and impress your truth upon our minds and our hearts. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.